Okay, great. Okay, to start with an apology, this is not quite the lecture on unreliable narration that I was planning that it would be. I started work on it on good t in good time last week, and then an improbable series of disasters ensued, the first of which was that I got a rare form of hay fever. I never get hay fever. And the streaming eyes made it actually quite hard to read the texts that I wanted to write about. Then, of course, I wanted to write about Nabokov's Pale Fire. And I discovered that my heavily annotated edition, annotated by myself in pencil in the margins, I had lent to a student, I'd forgotten this, some three years ago, a student who was proposing to write a PhD as a line-by-line -line marginal annotation of Nabokov's Pale Fire. And I thought this was a worthy project, so I gladly lent the copy, but I think three years is quite a long loan. And my suspicion is that that student has now gone to another university, has started writing that PhD, is possibly using my pencil annotations without attribution. So I made a note to myself to actually look at Dissertation Abstracts UK, just to see whether that's taken place. And instead, I went to the English Faculty Library to borrow their copy. Now, their copy impressed is signed both by Nabokov, his wife Vera, and their son Dmitri, which is highly unusual because Dmitri famously disapproved of his father's works. And then what did I find? That the English Faculty Library, which I had not previously been aware is run by crypto-communists, mm -hmm. the staff were on strike. So I couldn't borrow that copy either. And in any case, my headache was getting worse, so I thought that I would give up on this project and go home and work from there. I had other books that I could refer to, of course. And then a few other things happened. I live on a street a little bit down the way as a joke shop. And this joke shop got broken into. The, f the burglar alarm was set off. It went on and on and on. And this made my headache worse. The police took a long time to arrive. And before the police and whoever was meant to be turning off the alarm arrived, somebody threw a brick through my window. It landed on my desk, bounced off it, grazed the corner of my laptop, and landed in my glass of hay fever remedy. <laughs> On this note, sorry, on this brick was attached a note, and on it was one word, concentrate. And so I did. How do we know that narrative is unreliable? It arises from the impression that we are not the reader desired by the narrator. The desired reader is not only competent to understand it through, for example, understanding the language in which it's written and knowing enough about the subject concerned, but is also sympathetic to its perspectives and trusting in its facts. A feeling of discomfort arises when there is a distance between the actual and the implied reader is large, and especially when you are aware that the implied reader is not one that you want any more closely to resemble. So, for example, reading the sections of Mein Kampf which concern Jews, I can see the logical contradictions and sinister implications which the implied reader would not, and which I do not wish to lose sight of except in order to perform the thought experiment of understanding those who are influenced by it. But Mein Kampf is a work of rhetoric. It seeks to persuade and addresses itself to a greater spectrum of readers than those who would finish it wholly convinced. A reader's sense of distance from the implied reader is always more uncomfortable in cases where the presence from beginning to end of the implied reader is actually assumed. No attempt is made to persuade of the author's perspective because none is thought necessary. One could take the example of the transcript of a 17th century witch trial, which assumes in its readers a belief in the existence of witches, the necessity for their punishment, and the justice of the trial through which they are put. 
From such a text, a post-17th century reader is likely to feel a greater sense of detachment than from any work which rhetorically serves an argument which she rejects. But Mein Kampf and the transcript of the witch trial are not what is commonly meant by unreliable narration because a further element is necessary to that concept. That is that certain elements in the text strongly suggest that certain other elements in the text are to be distrusted. Specifically, the narrative voice is undermined by features of the text which that narrative voice produces factually, ethically, or both. A narrator suggested to be contemptible like, might tell one the truth, like John Self in Martin Amis's novel, Money. One suggested to be good might understand less about, uh, than the reader about what is occurring, like Oliver Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield. But it is not, repeat, to repeat, enough that a critique can be made of the assumptions of the narrator. See if any of you know where this is from. A toad-like figure in an olive green uniform, which bore a single red ribbon of the Order of Lenin, came into the room and walked with quick, short steps over to the desk. Anybody got it? Feel free to interrupt. General G looked up and waved to the nearest chair at the conference table. Good evening, comrade. The squat face split into a sugary smile. Good evening, Comrade General. The head of Otdiel II, the department of Smash, in charge of operations and executions, hitched up her skirts and sat down. This is orchestrated for maximum effect. The effect relies on the assumptions that neither heads of intelligence organizations nor people with toad-like figures and squat faces are women. The overturning of these expectations aims at generating surprise combined with amusement and intensified disgust at the squat figure, which is the more repellent by virtue of belonging to a female. What I've just been doing in the last two sentences is made a feminist critique of the narrator, which receives no endorsement within the novel. No? Thank you. Which is therefore not unreliably narrated in the conventional sense of that term. The American critic Wayne C. Booth gave the following helpful definition, which is quotation one for those of you who have got handouts. They will be on WebLearn. I have called a narrator reliable when he speaks for or acts in accordance with the norms of the work, which is to say the implied author's norms, unreliable when he does not. The implied author is another, is another concept which bears Booth's stamp. He makes what I find a helpful distinction between the FBP, the flesh and blood person, on the one hand, the implied author, on another, I shouldn't have brought hands in, there's three, and the narrator. For example, Atonement by Ian McEwen is written by the male FBP, Ian McEwen, born in Hampshire in 1948. He is, like every one of us, infinitely complex. But we can infer certain things about him from his authorship of this historical Second World War novel. 
He or she, and we can't tell which it is from the novel alone, seems to know a fair bit about English literature and about which kind of English literature was being read in Cambridge by undergraduates in the 1930s. He or she is prepared to spend several hundred pages dwelling on a woman tormented by guilt for a childhood crime and is prepared to spring a major narrative twist on the reader and has considerable skill with the English language. All of these things have to be true of the FBP and also of the implied author. But in addition, the implied author has certain opinions. He considers that the British retreat from Dunkirk was a shambles, as it is represented by the novel. Thinks that it is wrong to maliciously accuse someone of rape, and considers it appropriate that someone who has done this should spend the rest of their lives tormented by guilt. In other words, McEwen has to know and do the things we find in the novel in order to have written it, but he doesn't have to share the implied author's values. Maybe, privately, Ian McEwen considers that the retreat from Dunkirk was, in fact, a rather glorious moment for the British with their, with their little boats. But he thought, perhaps, that this novel would find greater favour amongst his readership if it embraced revisionism. We can't know for sure. And finally, we have his narrator, who we discover in the final section is Bryony Tallis, who up to this point has been one of the characters in the novel being narrated in the third person. So sorry to anybody who hasn't yet read it or seen the film. So, the FBP Ian McEwan has created an, a fictional FBP who has written a novelised testimony from which another implied author, Bryony Tallis's, implied author can be extrapolated. But from what we can find out and deduce about McEwen, Tallis and their respective implied authors, all four of them are very largely in accord. Admittedly, a famous critic, thought to be Cyril uh, Connolly, criticises the style of Tallis's opening section as pretentious. This opens up a slight difference between Bryony, the FBP, and the implied author of that section of the novel. Also, Bryony's novel, her testament, deviates at the end from fact, as she herself confesses. But she justifies this as a kindness to her lovers and the reader to let them survive and love. The actual FBP McEwen presumably justifies this and the subsequent revelation of the narrator's unreliability as part of a moving examination of guilt and grief. That's the biggest difference between them and it's not that great. In other words, had Bryony Tallis not committed a crime when she was 13, you can well imagine her having grown up to write the novel Atonement. You may not like her, you may not agree with her perspective on guilt, but the novel doesn't dislike her. The FBP critic myself, um, I'm not quite sure that I made that absolutely clear, but you have to take my word for that uncertainty. All you know is that the implied critic being constructed by the FBP, that is me, thinks that. And perhaps you've already had reason to distrust that. There are many cases which are clearer than atonement. A fairly good recent example is Sebastian Fawkes' novel Angleby, published in 2007. Anybody read this? Okay, very few. All right. Um, 
Engleby is structured as the diary of a young man through his time studying English at Cambridge University. If you want a bit, a bit of self-reflexive fiction, albeit of a historical kind, um, go ahead. Um, so he's, although I am about to give away the plot, I'm afraid. Um, he's studying English at Cambridge University, and, um, and then we, we go on with his diary to him working as a journalist in London after he's graduated. He's well-read, and he's very clever. He's also contemptuous of most things, most people, his university, his course, the study of English literature, and so on. He's strongly attracted to a fellow student called Jennifer. He spends a lot of his time on his own, driving to rural pubs, I know them, around Cambridge, engaging in shoplifting and taking nameless drugs. Here's an example of his style, quotation two, describing the road system around Basingstoke. The town seethed like, like Lao Kun within its concentric ring roads. I followed the signs for the centre, but after I'd spent 15 minutes obediently going where the signs told me, they had brought me back to where I'd begun. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. I didn't know that T.S. Eliot had been on the Basingstoke Urban District Council Highways, Ring Roads and Street Furniture Committee. Mike is satirical. He knows as T.S. Eliot. Some readers will find this somewhat juvenile and pretentious. I say some. Flesh and blood readers are various. English readers, belonging to a relatively anti-intellectual country, are likely to have a lower pretentious thre pretentiousness threshold than the readers of some other countries. Also, some behave in ways that others would describe as juvenile and pretentious, and perhaps some of those would find Mike's narration purely witty and erudite. But the number of flesh and blood readers who like Mike is likely to diminish as the novel goes on to a circle of readers who more and more resemble Mike himself. Beyond the question of approval, however, there's also the question of trust. Certain details of Mike's narration contra contradict his analysis of them. He claims to have many friends, for example, but as I say, he spends most of his time on his own. It's clear that his fellow students keep an arm's length from him. And they, the other students, don't emerge as people wholly without judgment of character. Minor provocations send him to his blue pills. An inaccurate comment about a music band throws him into such a fury that he wakes up, as he tells us, in a psychiatric ward on one occasion. My own diagnosis of the problem is simple, he explains. It's that I share 50% of my genome with a banana and 98% with a chimpanzee. Bananas don't do psychological consistency. And the tiny part of us that's different, the special Hopo sapiens bit, is faulty. It doesn't work. Sorry about that. Voiced by another narrator, this might be witty and wise and suggest a correspondingly witty and wise implied author. But in the context of the rest of Mike's narration, it acquires worryingly direct pertinency to Mike himself, suggesting his faultiness at least as much as it confirms his homo sapiens. One day, Jennifer, aforementioned, goes missing. The last time Mike saw her was the night before when he gave her a lift home. He follows the colleges and the police's attempts to find her, and when this fails, the attempt to find her, uh, and when this fails, the attempt to find her assumed murderer. He graduates and becomes a journalist. Finally, 
he himself becomes the object of a police investigation. Years later, he is in the end arrested and delivered to a secure psychiatric ward and gives the account now, which up to this point he'd suppressed, of what occurred on the night on which he gave Jennifer a lift. At some stage in this process, the reader understands that Mike killed her. The location of this stage will vary greatly between different readers. A reading involving early suspicion of Mike is perhaps not necessarily the best reading. It might result, result from a predilection for, su for such novels and an expectation that the reader's pact of trust with the narrator is going to be broken. Or it might stem from a particularly strong aversion to Mike's brand of intellectual snobbery, to the extent of making a juvenile quota of Eliot obviously seem capable of murder. More positively, the reader might be skilled in psychiatry and pick up it on Mike's mode of narration of the physical and psychological abuse which he suffered at school. Or she might have read Fawkes' previous novel, Human Traces, about the early development of psychiatry and be sensitised to signs of mental instability in Fawkes' writing. Still, the reader implied by the text has to, at some point, accept that they've been in the company of a self-deluded narrator who's omitted to narrate one of the most crucial events of the novel and is not approved of by the novel as a whole. Mike Engelby himself, who is actually not a bad literary critic, would be forced to read that novel in such a way. Even if he had more sympathy with the protagonist than did most readers, or Fawkes, who in an, in an interview after publication described Engelby as a bastard. It is possible to construct films on a similar principle. The 2000 film Memento, which is based on a short story, is partly told through the perspective of the protagonist who's trying to avenge the murder of his wife, but is suffering from a disease which affects his memory. As the viewer is vulnerable to his perspective, she sees the events as he does without the context necessary to interpret them, until gradually a different picture emerges. I think Mike Engelby typifies one kind of unreliable narrator, or one class of unreliable narrator, which could be called the young male. This kind of narrator's youth correlates to a relatively limited perspective, and this in combination with their maleness to a certain type of arrogance. This can be found in works even by relatively young males. The Rachel Papers was written by Martin Amos when he was 24 and is narrated by a man on the eve of his 20th birthday describing his life over the previous year. Like Mike Engelby, Charles Highway studies English literature, is bright, neurotic and despises most people. The situations in which he involves himself often make him look ridiculous and his descriptions of the world are often limited by his narcissism. However, he is factually reliable and no murderer. His account of the woman he wants, with whom he eventually has sex, demonstrates an overwe overweening male ego and wit, from which the novel as a whole distances itself only to a very limited degree. Beyond this, any given reader might want to laugh more with him than at him, whereas another, who is possibly more likely to be female, is suspended between pity for the narrator, dislike of the implied author who does not condemn him more, and transferred dislike of the flesh and blood author who created that implied author. Something of the, of the same is true of J.D. Salinger's Holden Caulfield, narrator and protagonist of A Catcher in the Rye. 
Now, this protagonist lacks the intelligence of Engelby or Highway, but shares their neurotic contempt for most people and Engelby's solitariness and instability. He's expelled from school for poor performance, runs away from his family, has a clumsy encounter with a prostitute, gets beaten up, nearly runs off with his sister, and finally accepts that he's sick. Like Engelby, he ends up in a psychiatric hospital, but unlike him, he has become a hero and icon for generations of teenagers. They are not misreading the text. It is possible for a narrator to be very young, naive, self-destructive and arrogant, and for sympathy for him not to be prohibited by that text's rhetoric. Perhaps the same is true of Alex, ultra-violent teenage narrator of Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. He's far more dangerous even than Mike, but is more verbally dexterous and, to this reader at least, more charismatic than any of the above. Finally, I would add the protagonist of a play, Stephen Jeffries's The Libertine, based on the life of the obscene and brilliant restoration poet Rochester. Like most plays, this does not have an overarching narrator, but the central character opens and concludes the play with a direct address to the audience and addresses the audience several times in between. He starts, quotation three. Allow me to be frank at the commencement. You will not like me. The gentlemen will be envious and the ladies will be repelled. You will not like me now, and you will like me a good deal less as we go on. He goes on to inform the female uh, members of the audience that he is up for it all the time, and then he addresses the gentleman, don't worry, I'm up for that too. And he concludes, I am John Wilmot, second Earl of Rochester, and I do not expect you to like me. Well, after various social and sexual misdeeds, whilst he's dying of syphilis, he concludes the play... Well, do you like me now? The answer is that we've been entertained by him, the greatest wit in England's restoration court, as animated by a gifted 20th century playwright. Yes, actually, to some extent, we probably do. Neither he, his fellow hooligan Alex, his fellow rebel Caulfield, or his fellow sex-obsessed intellectual Highway are unreliable in the same sense or to the same degree that... Mike Engelby is. Nor, on the other hand, is likability necessarily correlated to reliability. The connection of goodness to idiocy is apparent, as you may know, in the word silly, which derives from the German seelich, or holy, from die Seele, the soul, via good to naive to trivial and foolish. The narrator of Dickens's The Pickwick Papers stops short of foolishness, as does Pickwick himself, but they are limited in their understanding and boundless in their trust in a way which is both precisely measured against the world which the former's narration implies and which colours that world. The supposed editor of The Pickwick Papers opens... The first ray of light which illumines the gloom and converts into a dazzling brilliancy that obscurity in which the earlier history of the public career of the immortal Pickwick would appear to be involved is derived from the perusal which the narrate editor of these papers feels the highest pleasure in laying before his readers. His readers, if their taste for humour takes a certain bent, cannot but take some pleasure from such an account. And the flesh and blood author Dickens is not so cruel 
as to shock such readers by presenting a tragic world through such a mode of narration. Rather, the novel resembles a painting in the naive style, knowingly naive and benevolent in content, a garden scene, a street scene, not a massacre or a war. One could, of course, imagine the reverse, a mild liberal narrator of a fascist novel whose perspective was increasingly shown by the implied author to be dangerously naive. But although this might be successful at preaching to the converted anti-Nazi, it runs the danger of making the narrator's unreliability less obvious than his admirability, if it were directed as propaganda to a wider audience. Perhaps an analogous risk is run by Evelyn Waugh in Brideshead Revisited. This Second World War novel is narrated by a temperamentally moderate, rational, atheist Englishman who becomes fascinated by and involved with an eccentric, temperamental, aristocratic Catholic family whilst he's an undergraduate at Oxford, not studying English this time. His narration introduces the reader to th that family's world. Now he, the narrator, like perhaps a statistical majority of the novel's anticipated and actual readers, isn't Catholic, nor does he admire or share any of the, the variously lapsed, hypocritical, naive, self-tormenting, self-contradictory or mindlessly conventional forms of Catholicism which the family's members variously embody. Finally, a happy and passionate affair between him and the daughter of the house is brought to an end when she is brought to a sense of guilt at living in sin. And yet, by the end of the novel, a hole has been knocked in his atheism. And then one understands that the novel's implied author is a Catholic apologist, who just happens to have made the circumstances of his apology as challenging for himself as possible. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A resolutely atheist or anti-Catholic reader will reach the end of the novel unchanged and possibly without any sense that their narrator was unreliable except in his wavering at the end. The implied author permits such a reading. And as such, the novel is unusual. Decent narrators, such as that of the, um, of the Pickwick Papers, are rarely distant from the novel's implied values. It's perhaps significant that Pickwick is Dickens's first major work. In his conceit of making his narrator an editor and the comic distance he interposes between the implied author and the narrator, he shows a beginner's self-consciousness with the novel form. In fact, the English novel itself often showed such self-consciousness, playfulness and facetiousness in its early days until it had acquired self the self-confidence to be relatively transparent in technique and serious in mode. In the 18th century, the memoirs of the picaresque, self-justifying, polyandrous and incestuous Mole Flanders leaps to mind and the excruciatingly pedantic Tristram Shandy. Now, the latter is not factually unreliable, but the implied author is amused at his mode of reliability, and the flesh and blood author sees fit to inflict this amusement on the flesh and blood reader at very considerable length. Nor are these early narrators always protagonists. 
Henry Fielding's narrators are typically out of his stories, but deliberately facetious. The opening book of Tom Jones is entitled, containing as much of the birth of the foundling as is necessary or proper to acquaint the reader with in the beginning of this history. This is a form of unreliability in the same way that a straight-faced comic telling a joke is unreliable. In this sense, many comic novels have tonally unreliable narrators. Pride and Prejudice opens, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of fortune must be in want of a wife. The implied author tells us, this is far from being a truth. But see how funny are those who, frequently for selfish reasons, tell themselves and each other that this is so. This, of course, is irony. Other facetious narrators, however represent the views of the implied author in a manner which makes them appear ridiculous without losing their satiric force. That's how clowns, in the Elizabethan sense, operate. My favourite example of this is Mr Noon, an unfinished novel written by Lawrence in 1921. The third-person narrator acts for the implied author like a petulant, energetic, but ultimately benevolent schoolmaster, grabbing the back of the reader's collar in one hand and the back of his shorts in the other and frog-marching him up and down the page. When he addresses us as gentle reader, as he frequently does, he is knowingly being sarcastic. He spends over a hundred pages telling us um, about Mr Noon's pursuit of a local Nottinghamshire girl called e Emmy, describes how Noon is caught in flagrante with her by Emmy's father in their greenhouse, and then suddenly the section ends. Part two of the novel is entitled High Germany, and the narrator makes this much immediately clear. No, I'm not going to tell you how Mr Noon got out of that greenhouse. I am not. Eat the sop I've given for you, given you and don't ask for more till I've got up the steep incline of the next page and have declined like a diminished traveller over the brow of the third. You'll not hear another word about Emmy. He then begins to reorientate us. It appears that for some reason Mr Noon is now in Munich. Quotation four. I expect you are waiting for me to continue that the bedroom was a room in a brothel or in a third-rate and shady hotel or in a garret or in a messy artistic bohemian house where a lot of lousy painters and students worked their abominations. Oh, I know you, gentle reader. In your silent way, you would like to browbeat me into it, but I've kicked over the traces at last and I shall kick out the splashboard of this apple cart if I have any more expectations to put up with. He then describes a very fine room, tells the reader to go in and change into something which matches the finery of Noon's new lodgings, and then says, bow, gentle reader, bow across space to Munich, ancient capital of ancient kings, known to the British on the beautiful postage stamps. What neither the narrator nor the implied author will tolerate is English provincialism nationalism, or, three years after the war, anti-Germanism. They castigate sentimentalism, prudery, squeamishness, and cowardice, just as do Lawrence's other works, but never in so exuberantly bullying a mode. Given that the novel was left unfinished and only published in 1984, the freedom with which he browbeats his readers is probably affected by his sense that they, he knew they didn't exist. 
And it's a shame that this, of all his novels, is the one most restricted to Lawrence specialists, since Lawrence in a multicoloured suit and jester's hat may appeal more to precisely such people as dislike Lawrence than his other subtler and more serious narrators. Even this narrator, though, varies his tone. When he is most occupied with the developing relationship of Noon and the married German woman with whom he has elapsed, and yes, this is an um, autobiographical novel, his tone is intensely serious. In High Germany, he only whips out his mock truncheon on a few occasions when it occurs to him to see if the Hellcat of a reader, that's another thing we get called, is still there paying attention and getting the point. But variations in tone and mode of narration are, of course, common to many texts. Free and direct speech is only re recognisable as such if the perspective or style of the narrator and focalising character differ. And since the narrator necessarily has a broader perspective than the character by which they're temp temporarily inflected, this constitutes temporary unreliable narration. In works with multiple narrators or multiple focalising consciousnesses, it's likely that each one of them will be qualified by the presence of the others and unreliable insofar as their understanding and knowledge of the world is shown to be partial in the ontological and ethical senses of the word partial. In Ulysses, Stephen Dedalus and Leopold Bloom's consciousnesses are more reflected than are those of any other characters, but their presences qualify each other. Not only that, but the novel's techniques, which are not tied to consciousness, advertising style, play script, catechism, all demonstrate each other's limitations. One might consider one style or consciousness to be more perspicacious, capacious or mature than another in relation to that of the implied author, but such a hierarchy is not strongly urged on the reader. In other works of multiple narrators, on the other hand, the unreliability of some is stressed and measured against the relatively, uh, relative re reliability of the most likeable or most mature. For example, in Jul Julian Barnes's A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters, chapter eight, upstream, opens with, Darling, just time for a card. We leave in half an hour. Had our last night on the Johnny Wa Walker, now it's lo local fire water or nothing. Remember what I said and don't have it cut too short. Love you, your circus strongman. What follows are a sequence of postcards from an actor to his girlfriend in England. He's filming in a South American jungle. He realises, to be fair on him, as quickly as the reader does, that his girlfriend, who doesn't respond to anything he writes, is being unfaithful. What makes him unreliable is the fact that the implied author, who has also created far more sophisticated narrators within the same volume, History of the World in Ten and Half Chapters, finds him unwise and intellectually limited. But that's a judgment that's made through comparison. Sometimes the unreliability of a narrator is itself unreliable. Such cases require very careful reading. James Joyce's Dubliners, which in any case requires very careful reading. You may remember an encounter one of the short stories, the narrator is one of two boys who spends a day bunking off school. Initially, the perspective of the narrator seems to be that of a boy. The story opens, 
It was Joe Dillon who introduced the Wild West to us. He looked like some kind of an Indian when he capered round the garden, an old tea cosy on his head, beating time with his fist. Not to us he looked like some kind of an Indian, or he looked as we then imagined an Indian to look. The narrator also notes, Mahoney used slang freely and spoke of Father Butler as Bunsen burner. This description has some of the awe of a schoolboy who does not or not yet use slang. When we came to the smoothing iron, we arranged a siege, but it was a failure because you must have at least three. Here he's patiently explaining, as children sometimes will to ad adults, how to play a game on the assumption that we don't know how it works. And yet at other times, the narrative seems far distant from childhood. A spirit of unruliness diffused itself among us and under its influences, difference of culture and constitution were waived. We banded ourselves together. The protagonist then handles an incident in which an elderly man starts talking to him and then disappears to masturbate very well. It turns out that such wisdom as is present in the text does not just belong to the, the intermitt intermittently present narrating adult, but actually to the young boy himself. Then we have the cases over which um, there are arguments. A classic example of this is Tolstoy's 1880s novella, The Kreutzer Sonata. In, has anybody read this? Um, in which the central character, Pozneyshev, tells his life story to the narrator who finds himself sitting in a train carriage with him. The latest trains in Russia, by the way, are open plan. This kind of life is disappearing now. But the point is, one has very long conversations when, when one's um, in these compartments. And the whole novella is told by the man who's giving his life story to his travelling companion. What happened in his life was that he killed his wife because he suspected her of having an affair with a musician. Now he's opposed to sex altogether because he considers it to be corruptive of both men and women. Now, Pozneyshev certainly resembles an unreliable narrator. He is repellent. Quote, every now and again he uttered strange sounds as if he was clearing his throat or beginning to laugh, but breaking off in silence. He is a murderer, of course, and also his proposals for social reform would actually render humanity extinct. But the liberated lady and the conservative gentleman who were initially also in the same compartment and with whom he argues in the novella's opening pages are both made to look unsatisfactory when they argue with him. He also has the quality of knowing his limitations. He has the last word and the novella has two epigraphs, both from the Gospel of Matthew which have obviously not been selected by him, but by the narrator who has chosen to reproduce his narrative. Both of these quotations from Matthew endorse Pozneyshev's views on celibacy. Whether or not we read Pozneyshev as reliable, however, really depends on whether we find it credible that a flesh-and-blood person would create an implied author who shares Pozneyshev's views. And we know from Tolstoy's extra-literary post-face to the novella that he did. It is clear that such persons as the writers of these no notes not only may but positively must exist in our society when we consider the, the circumstances in the midst of which our society is formed. Actually, that isn't Tolstoy, it's Dostoevsky 
his contemporary, on the underground man, who is an opposite case of a narrator asserted by the author to be unreliable, but with a greater popular following than Poznyshev. Quotation five. I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. I am an unattractive man. I believe my liver is diseased. However, I know nothing at all about my disease. I am well educated, not to, uh, I'm well educated enough not to be superstitious, but I am superstitious. He has flashes of self-knowledge. His self-consciousness is self-validating, and he can amuse. You imagine, no doubt, gentlemen, that I want to amuse you. You are mistaken in that, too. However, irritated by all this babble, and I feel that you are irritated, you think fit to ask me who I am. Then my answer is, I am a collegiate assessor. One almost expects to hear, I am John Wilmot, second Earl of Rochester, his poetic predecessor. That is, in his opening words, he both is and is not unreliable, a rhetorical equivalent of the logical paradox, I am lying. Yet, by the end, when he justifies his ill-treatment of a kind prostitute and claims that we all have a kind of loathing for real life and so can't bear to be reminded of it, then, for some readers at least, he has overstepped the mark. Nabokov's, to return to him, Lolita, has generated a different kind of critical controversy. It is a brilliant novel. The implied author gives us laughs at almost every line. But he also gives us hundreds of pages of the narrative perspective of a paedophile for who, for the first half of the novel at least, is in a constantly primed state of lust. Moreover, the humour is that of the implied author, not Humbert himself. Readers' reactions to the novel vary, but some are queasy in the presence of a certain kind of subject matter, like Brett Easton Ellis's novel American Psycho. The same might apply. The supposed editor, editing the prison papers of Humbert Humbert, writes in his introduction, quotation six, I have no intention to glorify H.H. No doubt he is horrible, he is abject, he is a shining example of moral leprosy, a mixture of, etc., etc. A desperate honesty that throbs through his confession does not ab absolve him of sins of diabolical cunning, but how magically his singing violin can conjure up a tendresse, a compassion for Lolita that makes us entranced with the book whilst abhorring its author. That is supposedly by John Ray, Jr., PhD. The implied author, in fact, asks for this attitude, even whilst here parodying this local, unreliable narrator. Nabokov himself is more direct in his non-fictional separate work on a book entitled Lolita. Nabokov claims that people felt let down by the expectation that this would be pornography when they found literature instead. He then goes on, that my novel does contain various allusions to the physiological urges of a pervert is quite true, but after all, we are not children, not illiterate juvenile delinquents, not English public schoolboys who, after a night of homosexual romps, have to endure the paradox of reading the ancients in expurgated versions. 
this really doesn't address the point that the stablest readers with the richest sense of humour may find Humbert's prolonged company, particularly in the first half of the novel, distasteful. Nor really does Alfred Apple Jr., who, believe it or not, is a real person, writing in 1970, who says, the problem of its alleged pornography indeed seems remote today, which I think tells us a lot about uh, 1970. Now, Borkov is also responsible for the most spectacular case of unreliable narration I know, Pale Fire, the one I lent my copy of. This is a 999-line poem supposedly, supposedly by an American poet called John Shade, copiously annotated by his sometime neighbour and colleague Charles Kinboat. Kinboat reads the poem largely in relation to the history of the deposition of a king, Charles II, the beloved of Zembla his escape from Zembla, and a man named Gradus's failure to assassinate him. A reading of Shade's eccentric but otherwise undistinguished poem gives one very little basis for that reading. Moreover, Kinboat's notes are self-serving. It's clear that his claims of friendship with the poet are grossly self-delusional. In his introduction, Kinboat describes the conditions of his writing, the shaky little affair on which my typewriter is precariously enthroned now in this wretched motor lodge with that carousel outside and outside my head, miles away from New Y. All I have with me is a tiny vest pocket edition of Timon of Athens in Zemblin. Kinboat is, a t is an archetypal, unreliable narrator, but the implied author doesn't allow us to rest in any stable sense of his unreliability. Over the course of reading the commentary, which is much longer than the poem, one begins to suspect that Kinboat is the deposed King Charles, and by the end of the book, that reading itself is unlikely. There is vigorous critical debate as to the ontology of this narrator. Some argue that Kinboat is in fact a minor character in the text named Botkin, who, um, who has created Kinboat as an alter ego. Some argue that Kinboat created the poet Shade and the poem, and some argue that Shade created Kinboat as his own fictional commentator. Now, Borkov himself favoured the Botkin reading, but we don't have to be swayed by that. The point is that Nabokov created an ontological and interpretative conundrum. It's a work which makes you reflect on literary criticism, inevitably with self-consciousness. Also on the nature of fiction itself and the rules which determine reality within it. And if we're thinking in those times, unreliability can be pretty broadly defined. Any narrator who doesn't tell the reader the whole plot instantly without withholding information is perhaps in that sense unreliable, whereas narr narrative is defined as the deviation from the shortest path between the beginning and the end. And there is, of course, an overarching unreliability in all fiction which presents itself as such. Bryony Tallis asks, how can a novelist achieve atonement when, with her absolute power of deciding outcomes, she is also God? Likewise, how can a reader determine what is unreliable? By playing God. Thank you.